Welcome to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. I'm your host, Sam Abbott, registered dietitian nutritionist and PCOS nutrition expert. I'm here to help you learn how to manage PCOS and support your hormones while also having a healthy relationship with food in your body. You can improve PCOS symptoms and labs without dieting. Get ready to feel better with PCOS and leave diet culture in the rearview mirror. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. Have you ever wanted to know a little bit about how a therapist could help you with disordered eating or body image distress? If so, you are going to want to listen to today's episode because I am joined by licensed mental health counselor, Molly Barr. Molly works with people helping them through their stuck points so they can make peace with food, improve their body image, and be able to pour more energy into what is most important to them. Um, We discussed a variety of things on the podcast today. We talk about why Molly takes a weight-neutral approach in her practice. We talk about the biggest obstacle that she sees um, when clients are trying to overcome disordered eating, and she gives some thoughts and tips on how you can work through this obstacle. I'm going to give you a hint. I see the same obstacle in my practice, and we definitely talked about that in this episode. Um, And then Molly also talks about a few ways that a therapist can help you overcome obstacles. And she specifically goes into talking about internal family systems or IFS and eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is also known as EMDR. And um, after the podcast recording, Molly was telling me about how EMDR can be so helpful specifically with body image distress and overcoming core beliefs related to body image distress, Um, a very common core belief for body image distress is the belief, I am not good enough. And so if that thought feels distressing, EMDR could be a good tool for that. And she just explains like how it's used in practice. So I hope that you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Molly. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to chat with you. Me too. Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Molly Barr. I'm a licensed mental health counselor. Um, I work with body image, trauma, anxiety, depression. Um, I do all work virtually and I work in a couple of states. I won't list them out. I know that'll be in the, in the credits, but that's me. Um, and I know that Brie Campos, who is my body image supervisor and um, has been a guest on the show, highly recommends you to our clients for referrals. So oh, she's just the best. Says a lot. Thanks, yeah, Brie. she really is. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you get involved in being a therapist and kind of specializing in what you do? Yeah, so I'd say like the very uh, short story here is 
in high school, I had a traumatic incident where I developed PTSD and I went to therapy eventually. I got better. And then, you know, college comes around. I started thinking like, I kind of want to give back in a way that my therapist kind of gave me my life back. And so I was kind of on this path to being a therapist. I'm going to work with PTSD. I kind of, you know, specialize in that. But as time went on, I really just got a lot more interested in eating disorders, which I think like looking back on that, it's like, yeah, I probably was struggling with my own kind of like disordered eating. Mm -hmm. Um, So you know, I kind of like get out into the field and sometimes you just get thrown into like a, an area of the field where whoever will hire you. And so I did start with like substance use disorder. I worked at like inpatient programs and outpatient programs. Um, back in the day, I thought, okay, this is going to be like really good to learn about because I viewed binge eating disorder, which wasn't a diagnosis at the time, but that's what I really wanted to work with. I viewed that as like an addiction to food. Now we know now, we know better. We That's like not true. Yeah. But you know, so I got that kind of um, background until I got into the eating disorder world. And so that's, you know, I worked in an inpatient unit before I started a private practice. And it's just kind of, you know, I've done a lot of learning in these last like 10 years um, ever since then. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm glad that you brought up that little tidbit about binge eating disorder, because a lot of people do think people who experience binge eating, especially now feel like binge eating is a result of being addicted to food, being addicted to sugar, not having enough willpower and, a lot of the clients that I work with view their binges as like a cause of weight gain. And so they feel like they need to lose weight as part of their treatment. And it just creates like this perfect storm. Right. And we're like, we're looking at kind of like the wrong quote unquote problem. Mm -hmm. And so now that I see it so differently, I really think of it as more of like an addiction to dieting or an addiction to the thin ideal in a way, rather than an addiction to food, food was really just like a normal, natural reaction to dieting or restriction or this like desire to change the bodies that we have. Yeah, definitely. Um, people view binge eating as the problem, but really binge eating is the solution that you're using. And we have to do some digging to figure out the exact problem. Absolutely. And so if we can try to figure out a way to stop dieting and restricting, let's see what happens with the binge. But it's hard because a lot of people come in, you know, I I need to stop binging. This is what I want to stop doing. And they don't like, you know, most people don't want to hear like, actually, you might need to focus on something else first to get there. Yeah, Yeah, it kind of makes me think about diet culture and weight centric medical care, because I feel like, especially in the PCOS space, if everybody was receiving care where they were being encouraged to eat enough, still enjoy food, um, like PCOS management wasn't looked at through the scope of weight loss, I feel like people would have a lot easier time kind of accepting or embracing the fact that to heal binge eating, you really have to work on letting go of dieting. 
and that a lot of the advice is actually part of what contributed to, like even the medical advice may have contributed to the disordered relationship with food. Definitely. Well, I'm really glad to hear another professional kind of reinforcing that because I know how important it is for everybody to hear it from all different sources. (laughs) Um, You mentioned that you wanted to go into substance abuse and then you kind of ended up more in eating disorders. And I know on your Instagram, which for anybody listening, if you're not following Molly, she has an amazing Instagram account. Um, but on your Instagram account, you talk a lot about taking a non-diet approach to food. So how did you find yourself here? Because for a lot of people that I interview and myself included, a lot of our professional training did include like anti-fat bias or being really weight centric. Yeah, this is where like the record scratches kind of because I so like I finally got into the eating disorder world, which which can be really hard to break into. Um, there's kind of an expectation when you start working with eating disorders that you need to work at an inpatient unit. I was living in Louisiana at the time. There's one unit in the entire state. So, you know, it's oh my gosh, very hard to get a job like that. So I was, you know, kind of like working in this other part of the field until I got that job. Anyways, um, I learned a lot there as we tend to do, but there's a lot of information that was missing. So, um, I met my husband, he's a, he's in the coast guard. So we ended up, we had to move. And that was when I decided to go into private practice and then just start taking a lot of training to make sure, you know, is there any other kind of gaps that I need to fill in my understanding of eating disorders? So I was able to go to Anita Johnston's training. So, um, I hope I said the right thing now that I think about it. Um, she has a special inpatient program in Hawaii. I don't even think I can talk about it right now because everything going on in Ma- uh, Maui just happened. Oh, so it's like, so really tragic. heartbreaking to think about. Yeah. I hope everyone is okay there. And it was there that I actually learned about intuitive eating and health at every size. So that's when the record really scratched. Like, mm-hmm. how have I worked in this field for so long and did not know this information. So there was like, there was a lot of shame and guilt and I'd been putting information out online at that point. And so just feeling really bad about not knowing what I didn't know, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is kind of unfair. I had to kind of work through a lot of those feelings. Yeah. It's so interesting that you say that because I do think professionally, we don't know what we don't know. And when it comes to haze and intuitive eating and the non-diet space, we don't know what we don't know because we're not taught a lot of that information in school. And even the healthcare professionals that we're working with haven't either. Um, and I, re- I know that I'll have some healthcare professionals listening to this. And I would just encourage everyone to be like, I don't know what I don't know. And I need to seek out this information because like you, I felt the same way when I, I was just thinking about like the harm that I probably caused with previous clients before I was really aware of a lot of things related to haze and intuitive eating. I feel like it opened a whole new world, which is maybe part of the overwhelm too. So it's like the guilt and shame of not knowing this information. So of course we have to practice what we preach, stay really 
open-minded, non-judgmental, lots of self-compassion as we go through that. But then it just kind of opened this door to this whole new world of, wow, there's a lot more information here to learn, not just about health at every size and intuitive eating, but especially with body image. Like I just, Mm -hmm. I was still kind of stuck in this idea that we need to figure out a way to like how our body looks, which is just so Mm -hmm. cringy to say out loud that I thought that was the only option, but I didn't know. And then a lot of things kind of shifted. So I felt like I needed to really um, pivot from everything. I had hair extensions at the time that I took out. I dyed my hair back to brunette, which I'm like a natural brunette. Um, I stopped wearing makeup during that period of time, I really want to like move away from like beauty standards just in general, mm-hmm. just to kind of like strip it away, yeah. work through this stuff and then add back in whatever just feels good to me. Mm-hmm. That you're, you're doing it because you want to, not because you feel like it's an expectation. Exactly. A societal expectation. Yeah. Yeah. And something else I'm thinking too, is that for some people listening who might be from like a marginalized identity, sometimes conforming to like standard beauty standards is like how people get by too. And I think like having more discussions about that is really important and doing the systemic work like in society to try to break down those beauty standards is important too. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Where you were talking about body image and you said, it sounds cringy now to say, like, I thought body image was like trying to like how you look. Can you just briefly explain, like, what is the core of body image work or like what is the end goal that people may want to try to shift to instead of liking how their body looks? I think of it as probably more of like a toolbox for lack of a better word um, that there's a variety of options for a lot of reasons. Like, so if I, you know, we put out the options of like, you know, body neutrality, body acceptance, body functionality, Mm -hmm. body respect, body liberation, um, body functionality. I know these are just Mm -hmm. like, I'm throwing things out there. Not everybody is going to, that's not attainable or even like desirable or reasonable for everybody. And so I think it's important to know that there are a lot of options. They're not all going to fit for you, you know, at once. So Mm -hmm. there are days where body functionality is really helpful and really thinking about like, Oh, it's, you know, and having like gratitude for like my heart is beating right now. And my, lungs are working and keeping me alive. I don't even have to think about like how amazing is that. And yet there's another day where, you know, with, especially with chronic health conditions or some like PCOS, there can be some things with, with that, that make it really difficult to really Mm -hmm. think about like trying to appreciate like your body's functions and like, you know, just trying to appreciate your body when sometimes it's probably not even helpful at that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love how you're you're saying that how you approach this is just a little individualized just based on on the person and kind of where they're at. And yeah, you are right that some of the symptoms of PCOS make body image work even more difficult. I always like to think of body image work of like 
the focus is really evaluating how you feel about your body and how that affects how you're showing up every day and your and how it's affecting your quality of life and then just kind of going from there I like that approach yeah yeah Speaking of body image work, I know a lot of the work that you do with clients is helping people move away from dieting. And for people listening, that is one of their goals or one of their main goals too. So are there any common themes or obstacles that do pop up with your clients who are trying to move away from dieting, like things that you commonly see? Yeah. Um, What is that? What's the meme about like, what's the hardest part of moving away from dieting and why is it body image? Like, I think it's, (laughs) of course it's body image pictures. Like there's just certain Mm -hmm. themes, events, topics, any kind of major life changes. It'll be like pregnancy or, you know, whatever it may be. It's going to bring body image up. Um, and so that's where we come back to some of those different concepts that we were talking about. And then if those concepts don't really work very well. So let's say we're trying to do, you know, trying to work with the different kind of like thoughts we're having about body image. If applying that is just feeling so helpless, like I'm not getting anywhere. I have like so much resistance to that. That's when I start to dig a little bit deeper. And that's where I bring like EMDR into the picture and also IFS, which is internal family systems. I should go back to EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. So those are two modalities I like to start to pull in there to help work through that kind of body image. Awesome. And I definitely want to go into talking about each of those. But I also thought it was really interesting that, you know, you said that the biggest obstacle of moving away from dieting is body image stuff, because I think a lot of people listening don't realize that. And I know for me as a dietitian, when I am working with somebody, and I think with PCOS, it's very interesting when we talk about, you know, moving away from dieting because people have the experience of, I actually see my symptoms get better. I feel better when I'm eating a certain way. And so how do I blend like that knowledge with not dieting or being restrictive? And people think that we're just delving like right into nutrition with that, or we're talking about thoughts and feelings about food in a vacuum when really the big elephant in the room is body image and how somebody feels about their weight. And that is really like the core of the work that we do. Right. I think that's where we have to kind of take multiple directions with that. And so we can apply different kind of um, techniques of getting curious with that thought of body image and like, what is the hurdle to it? And then either we try to work on changing and like shifting our core beliefs around that. And if that is not working, let's go even deeper and get really curious with that. Where does that Mm -hmm. come from? Where does it stem from? Let's float back to earliest memories of feeling that way, because it's probably being fueled from some old stuff. Yeah. It's interesting because I think a a question that I get all the time is, can I have more food freedom and also want to lose weight? Or can I not diet and focus on weight loss? And I think this conversation is a perfect example of how 
those two things like can't really coexist because when you are letting go of dieting, you are breaking down the belief system that you have around bodies and weight. And like you said, you're really digging deep with like your core beliefs and what's important to you and continuing to kind of sit with body image distress or focusing on weight loss. You're kind of like upholding those beliefs. Yeah. And sometimes I will answer that question with a, yeah, sure. You can have those thoughts. (laughs) Of course you can like our entire lives. We've been told that, you know, thinner equals X, Y, and Z. And so of course there's this desire to lose weight and change the body that we have. So it makes sense that you're having this thought. We can of course go into like diet culture and where this, all these messages are coming from and why this is my first like automatic thought which by the way, we have no control of that automatic thought. Like that is not our responsibility, but it is our responsibility to respond to that and see what would be a more helpful thought. So a lot of times my answer is like, yeah, it's okay to have those thoughts. The actions though, yeah, like to make peace with food while dieting, it just doesn't, I mean, you could try to make it work. Let's see what happens. It usually long-term doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned IFS and EMDR, and I think that these are really interesting topics for the audience to hear about, especially people who aren't really sure how therapy can benefit them. I think a lot of times people think of therapy of like as maybe something's happening right in that moment that you want to work through. But a lot of times when it comes to disordered eating, we tend to find things that happened a long time ago that are still kind of, um, I don't know the best clinical way to explain it, but just kind of like our bodies are still holding on to that trauma. Um, So let's start with IFS. Can you explain to us a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So IFS is a form of parts work. A lot of people maybe heard of that kind of umbrella term is parts work. And it's, it's a theory with IFS's internal family systems. It's basically saying like, we are, we all have multiple parts to us and we're kind of doing like family therapy with all of our different parts, which, which means like we are getting to know the different parts of us. We want to listen. We want to treat our parts just like we want to be treated. We want to feel, make them feel seen and heard and understood. Any kind of part that's in like an extreme role is a protector part. So it'd be getting to know that part of you that shows up in this way. So let's say there is like a body image part, maybe a negative body image part, Mm -hmm. the part that's just like berating you. Mm Mm-hmm. Traditional therapy is usually about like challenging that thought. Like that's not true. There's no evidence for this. You know, X, Y, and Z. We're actually kind of fighting with that part. And I mean, you know, let's think about how that would feel if somebody was treating you that way. We probably, you know, we wouldn't like it or we'd get louder. Like it doesn't really Mm -hmm. work long term. So it's it's like the opposite approach. It's getting to know that part of you. Why is it telling you these things? Where did it get that from? What is it afraid would happen if it didn't tell you these things or that it's really trying to protect you from something really significant. There's usually a lot of shame under there. It's trying to protect you from not getting hurt again. It would rather criticize you than have someone else criticize you. There's so many things that these parts are trying to protect us from. And so, I mean, the whole process is getting to know our parts and then helping unburden them. 
So then they can take on a new role. Now I know that this starts to like really get out there. So tell me <laughs> if I'm like all the way out into universe. Okay. <laughs> Bring me back in. Um, have you, did you ever read the body keeps the score? I have, I have the book, but then I heard how the author maybe is a little problematic. So Absolutely. So I would like hesitate to bring it up, but I know a lot of people have read it. So of course, like mm-hmm. disclaimer, first of all, it's actually like really graphic. I, I don't really recommend oh, okay. people reading it and stuff, but gotcha. Like it I needs remember, a trigger warning it, with it. Major trigger warning. And it's like really dense. But anyway, so they do I remember reading about IFS in that book. It's like one of the first like really mainstream books on trauma that came out. And it just made absolutely no sense to me. And it's just kind of one of those theories or therapies that you kind of have to experience it because when you hear about it, it starts to really kind of like get out there and it, it's just weird, but let's just kind of keep it as we all have parts. Mm-hmm. All parts have like good intentions. They're trying to protect us from something. And I think it can even be helpful just to start naming it. Like there's a part of me that wants to lose weight and there's a part of me that really wants to make peace with food. And part of that is helping to kind of externalize it. These are different parts. It's not all of me, but it's a part of me and we can, we can kind of work with that. Gotcha. So when it's called internal family systems, is the family like all of your parts inside of you or is the family like referring to your family, like growing up or what is that? Where does the name come from? I think it actually comes from, so Dick Schwartz is the guy who created this and he was trained as a family therapist and he started to notice, he worked with eating disorders and he started to notice that people were using parts language already. Like there's a part of me that wants to heal this eating disorder Mm -hmm. and a part of me that wants to go binge and purge. Mm -hmm. And so he just started to notice that there were a lot of um, parallels with like internal like parts and family systems. So he started to try to do what he learned to do in family therapy sessions, but with their parts. And it started to like work and kind of like take off from there. But I do think you bring up a really good point about how one, a lot of times our parts learn their roles from our family members. So Mm -hmm. I always ask that question, where did you learn this from? And a lot of times it is from mom or dad. But what I also like to use it for is starting to recognize other people's parts. Um, and so mm-hmm. Brie and I were actually just talking yesterday about like, well, my parts like your parts, which is like a really mm-hmm. friendly way to say it. But usually it's yeah. like, if someone's really taking you off, it's more like, okay, some of my parts are reacting to their parts. It's not all of them. It's a part of them that's really bugging me. And some of my parts don't like that. So again, it kind of helps externalize it. It's not so like, I hate this person. I just, you know, kind of just like that part of them that's showing up right now. Gotcha. So if somebody was working with a therapist who practiced using IFS and they've identified the like different parts of themselves, how then what do you do with those to move forward or work on healing? Think of it in two separate parts. So the first part is to befriend the parts, um, really develop a relationship with the parts. And that can be really hard. So think about like your inner critic and trying to become friends with them because 
every part has a, at least one polarized part. So your inner critic is probably going to like bump up against your like inner cheerleader. Mm-hmm. And so it's not always a simple process. That's what I'm trying to get at. But once we can really develop a trusting relationship with that part and really develop a compassion and understanding towards that part, we ask for permission to go to the part it's protecting. See, this is really confusing. All of our protector parts are protecting younger, more vulnerable parts of us that got hurt. When they allow us to do that, we listen to those younger parts and then we help unburden any kind of beliefs, core beliefs, feelings that they develop back then. And what's cool is because it's usually like these like seven-year-old parts will say, you get to get that kind of seven-year-old part of you back. And you'll even notice I'm a lot more playful and creative and energetic. You kind of get that young part of you back. Mm-hmm. And then that inner critic can turn into whatever role it wants to take on. So you're going to notice a lot less friction, a lot less like negative self-talk. It doesn't get eliminated. Still there. There's still going to be some thoughts, but it's going to be a lot easier to manage. Gotcha. So part of it is identifying parts that are kind of from different time periods of life or experiences that previous experiences you've had. Yeah. And I always preface this with like, this is the weirdest question I'm going to ask you. See if you can ask that part how old it thinks you are and just see what number comes to you. And there's always some sort of like five <laughs> and it's yeah. uh strange you know it's always really interesting what it connects to and so we try to update the part like you are you know she's not five years old anymore she's actually you know 25 years old and you know look her in the eyes and really see she's an adult now she doesn't need this kind of protection Mm -hmm. parts get frozen in time so a lot of times those really big protectors the negative core beliefs like the body image parts and the critics they might be like seven years old or ten years old um, and they don't realize you've grown up. So again, I, I can hear what I'm saying. I know I sound a little bit out there and it makes it a little, <laughs> no, it does a little weird. <laughs> it makes sense. And you and I were chatting before we hit record and just saying that so often when I'm doing nutrition work and we're trying to like peel back the layers of what's going on or driving certain behaviors or driving certain feelings, I can just see or tell that something happened or there was something, you know, in childhood or with a family dynamic that a client is just really holding on to or like deep down that's that's really kind of guiding them in their decision. So I think it's it's interesting to hear about the different parts. It works. It's really helpful for working on our relationship with food and body. So we can know we need to do X, Y, and Z, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And there will be parts that really resist it. They're really afraid of what will happen if you make those changes. And mm-hmm. so it, it just, it really helps clear the way to get you to a place you want to be at. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. Thank you for explaining that. Now I'm like, what are all the parts of me? To... <laughs> Should we practice? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, my husband, when he comes home from work, I'm going to be like, listen to what I learned about today. And let me tell you about all of my parts. I can just like see the look on his face right now. 
it is so useful though. Like whenever you really need to have any kind of conversation, Hey, you know, part of me really didn't like when you said X, Y, and Z. (laughs) Which you're right. We do kind of naturally think of things like that sometimes or say a part of me. Yeah. The second piece that we were going to talk about or visit is EMDR, which do you watch The Housewives? Yes. So Dorit from Beverly Hills, she did EMDR last season. Oh, I got chills. I didn't know that. Yeah. um, Trigger warning or content warning for a home break-in. She was home and burglars, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this, burglars broke into her house and she was there alone with her kids and they robbed her and it was obviously very traumatic. And in the season, they showed her doing EMDR. So for, I know a lot of people listening also like Bravo. So I just wanted to bring that up. But for people who are not familiar with EMDR, (laughs) can you share a little bit about what it is and how it can potentially be helpful? Yeah. So EMDR is a trauma therapy that helps reduce the distress of an event that happened. That's where the desensitization comes from. And then it helps reprocess what happened. So you start to see the event differently and you can kind of move from, so to use that example, she might've developed a core belief. I'm in danger. I'm overwhelmed. And EMDR throughout this process, she will get to a point of feeling like I am okay, or I can get through it. Like it really helps shift that. It's not about the words. It's putting words to what that feels like in your body. That's what a core belief is. It's like putting words to this. So that's why sometimes you can have the thought that like, hey, I know I'm safe right now, like literally safe. I'm Mm -hmm. sitting right here with you and my body feels overwhelmed. I'm in danger. I'm going to die. And so EMDR Mm -hmm. helps kind of zip those two together. It helps you get to the place of I'm okay. I got through it. And just imagine how that feels in your body. It's very different than like constantly feeling like Mm -hmm. I'm in danger. Yeah. And what, so with the desensitization, I think on the show, her therapist was using like a clicker. Do you, are there, what are, what are the different ways that people can be desensitized? Cause she was like talking to Dorit and like using the clicker. Interesting. I, I, yeah. So I feel like that's, I'll try to save this for the end of, you know, we're all, there is an eight phase protocol. It's pretty standardized and people do it probably a little bit different. So heads up. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm remembering it not quite (laughs) the right way. (laughs) No, I really might not be remembering it the right way. I still think it's important to know because some people have tried EMDR and they did not like it. And so that's fair. You don't have to ever do it again. And there might be another route that feels a lot safer or maybe, you know, all therapists are different. So maybe they do it in a different way. Um, So they found that she actually discovered EMDR, uh, Francine Shapiro, when she was walking through a park and she just noticed when she was walking, she was naturally looking left to right. And she noticed that 
through that process, she was able to resolve and kind of problem solve some issues. And so Mm -hmm. it just kind of took off from there, really expanded. Um, Over time, they've learned it's not just eye movements that can be helpful. And so she really regretted calling it eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Mm -hmm. So there are different forms where you can self-tap. You can tap your Mm -hmm. shoulders, the top of your legs. There is the tapper. So it buzzes left and right. Maybe. Okay. I think that that's what she was doing. The buzzer. I think that, yeah. I don't know why I said clicker. I think she had things like in her hands. Yeah, that's, and maybe it clicks too. Yeah, they're all a little bit different. Um, and I do it virtually. I did want to put that mm-hmm. out there that that is actually, it it works well. It's effective. Um, of course, we've learned a lot in the last few years because there was a lot of hesitancy about trauma therapy online. I love it because I can send a website to my client and I can control the ball. And so the ball mm-hmm. goes back and forth and you just, you know, go, you know, look left and right. Um, and that's called EMDR you know, that's the actual phase four of processing. And again, it's mm-hmm. an eight phase protocol. So that's not mm-hmm. the only part where you're moving your eyes back and forth, but that's what people think of when they think of EMDR. Mm-hmm. So to add some clarity for people who may not be familiar with this, that act- when you're actually going through the protocol, are you talking about like what happened while you're doing the desensitization? You know, you're typically not. Okay. And there are different protocols. So maybe you okay. do. There's like a recent events protocol where you might just, while you're, you know, doing the bilateral stimulation, talking about what happened. So it is mm-hmm. possible. I really like using this other technique where, like, let's just talk about like one of your top 10 favorite memories while we're processing this other memory. So it's it's actually really kind of cool because you don't have to think about the trauma very long. It's just like for a second. And then we go back to, yeah, like tell me about that vacation. And so there's a mm-hmm. lot of like, quote unquote, like kind of safer feeling ways to process trauma. It's not going to be just like flooding to your system. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of different protocols. That's really interesting. Well, Kind of to close things out with this interview, do you have any tips for finding a therapist, especially one who is more haze informed or somebody who is more weight neutral? I keep saying we need a Yelp for providers. (laughs) Yeah, we really do. I would love to have something. And maybe it's not Yelp. Maybe it's not where you, you know, post about you know, this person was not safe, but maybe the opposite of like, these are the providers who are haze aligned and all that, but it's hard right now until we develop that resource. Um, I would be just looking for those kinds of words. You know, psychology today is a really big directory. Not everybody's on it to find therapists, but it's nice because you can narrow down the specialties, the zip code, um, what insurance they take. But then I would also be kind of scanning. Do they say they're haze aligned or intuitive eating, fat acceptance, you know, any kind of the words we're looking for to find who's aligned with us. Or, you know, you could use Google too, but yeah, it's not easy. We're out here, but it's not easy. Yeah. 
But I think those are some great tips, though, for getting started. All right, Molly. Well, thank you so much for being on. Can you tell everyone where they can find you online or how they can work with you? Yeah, they can find me on Instagram. It's connected to Facebook. So Molly B Counseling is the handle on both of those. And you can check me out on my website. It's mollybarcounseling.com. And I'm sure you'll put a link in the bio. Yeah, (laughs) I will definitely include all of that um, in the show notes. Thank you. All right, Molly. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe so you can catch new episodes. I'd also be so grateful if you left a review and rating for the pod as well. See you next Wednesday.